saints, let's pray together. Last week, I had the option of uh, worshipping like a non-minister, and I realized just how difficult it is, actually, to get ready for worship. So let's calm our hearts as we invite the Lord to do a work among us. God, I just pray this morning that, that uh, whatever it is that we may have been uh, doing as we've traveled to church, as we've got ready, as we've run around and uh, we've been scanned and we've come in and found a bulletin and, and many distractions that might uh, be upon us as we just make ready to come and worship you. I pray, Father, that those now would be in the past and that you would just open your word, your lively word to us right now as we focus upon you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's be seated and let's take up our Bibles as uh, we turn to First Thessalonians. And as Ben said in this series... We are simply asking, what is it that the gospel does? What practical difference does it make when you receive the good news and not just know it? So the devil knows the good news. He knows that we are alienated from God. He knows that we are destined for judgment and death. And he is well aware that the effects of this future judgment weigh upon us already. And yet he full knows, fully knows that we can be rescued from that judgment and death. And in fact, we can start to experience the effects of our salvation in our lives already, entirely by grace. And I would suggest to you that the, the devil probably knows these facts better than we do. But the difference between us is that he hates the good news. Now, we're not talking about knowledge in this series. Even the devil knows the good news. We're talking about reception. And a key verse in the whole book for us actually is in our chapter today. It's verse 13. And Paul says, or Paul and his friends say, We thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. The gospel is not just another human message. It is from God. And as a result of that, it is suffused with the power of God. And so when it's received in you, it works in you. The gospel is living and active and does something inside of you. And the most loving thing that you can do, having received it, is simply to share it with someone else. Look with me, please, at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. And Paul describes here how they shared the good news. Being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, what it is, but our own selves, who we are. To share it effectively means not only telling people what it is, but also showing them what it does, living it out together. Some scholars believe that the, this language, affectionately desirous, describes the kind of love that a parent has for a child. If your child has just turned 50, you'll post a wonderful collage on Facebook. It was beautiful. And, uh, you know, we, we often take great pride in our kids. And that fits, I think, with this mother and father image that Paul uses to sandwich this verse. Paul loves his church like a parent loves a child. And if you've got a child, or you are a child, or you've had a child, uh, you will know that there are, there are effective and ineffective ways of teaching them things. 
For example, if you want your child to learn to ride a bicycle, what you don't do is just tell them what a bicycle is. Describe it to them and how it functions on a technical level and then leave them to it. And if you did that and they gave up learning to ride a bicycle, what you would not do is say, but I gave you a bicycle. What's the matter with you? I explained to you how a bicycle works. I showed you a video on YouTube of the greatest cyclists in the world at the Tour de France. And uh, then I took you to a museum of the history of the wheel and uh, taught you all about the penny farthing through to the BMX. Would that be an effective strategy for teaching a child to ride a bike? Of course it would not. What if on top of that, every Sunday evening, you dropped them off at a bicycle club and left them to it? Would that work? <laughs> not if at the same time your bike was in the basement gathering dust and they never ever saw you ride it. That wouldn't teach them anything, except to hate the bicycle. Would it be realistic to expect them to get into bikes? Of course not. And yet so frequently, this has been the church's strategy with the gospel, to share a little bit of information, maybe to hive off the difficult stuff to someone else and then do nothing with it ourselves. To share the good news in word, but to conceal the good news in action is a highly ineffective strategy for sharing it. What do you want to do? If you want to teach someone to ride a bike, you get them one, don't you? And then you hold them on it, and then you give them a little push. You take them somewhere soft so they can fall off and not get too badly hurt. You try and catch them when they fall. And when they start to get the hang of it, you get on your bike and you ride along with them, and then you go on bike rides, and bit by bit, they learn how to ride. Then you get them a bigger bike. And that is Paul's vision for the church. I'm going to tell you that's our vestry, our eldership's vision for the church as well. It is a church that does the gospel together, that is contagious and teaches one another what it is to live it out. That's what our church is about, not about explaining what the gospel is, but also sharing what it does. Now, I love it here. love this church. My two favorite things are to work here and not to work here. Those are like my two, so, you know, it's a win every way. Last week, I took the week off. It was, it was great, uh, but I missed you. I'm affectionately desirous of you. I was actually sad not to be with you. So, so last Sunday, what we did at 11 o'clock, when uh, people were meeting in the tents outside, just to catch a glimpse of what was going on on the hill, we decided that we would worship on our own kitchen roof and uh, just try and participate on the fringes without anyone knowing we were there. And I think Paul would have done that. If Paul had had a rectory, he would have sat on the roof. It says that, you know, he was affectionately desirous. There was a sort of ache in his heart to be with his, his family, his church family. And, that, and that's why he shared himself. He, he didn't just give a sermon and run away, but he shared the whole of himself. It means the essence of actually who he was. New International Version translation, it says that we shared our lives, but that's a lame translation. It doesn't say lives, zoe. It says souls, suke. It means, uh, please don't take your doctrine from Disney. It's not a wafty thing that blows around. It means the whole self. He shared the, the essence of who he was. His whole self was, his whole personality was invested in that little church. And that means they got to see the funny bits and the rough bits and the holy bits and the works in progress, all of him. 
He was an open book. That is what the gospel does. The gospel enables us to live with one another as an open book. It enables Christians to share who they really are without the fear of being judged. And I would suggest to you that it starts at the front. So writing to church leaders in the, uh, the stolid cultural milieu of Britain in the 1960s, not exactly a time or a place famed for its uh, warmth of feeling or expressiveness, uh, Leon Morris, scholar, said, Paul's intensity of expression is a rebuke to the kind of tepid service that leaves the innermost self to oneself and is always a cause of ineffectiveness. That's a, that's a British bar fight, that is. That's a scholar smashing a bottle and saying, come on, let's have some. It's, uh, it's him saying, look, stop being so stiff. Stop holding back. Stop concealing. Stop pretending. Let's get open with one another. I want to suggest to you that Fox Chapel does not need yet another place to come and hear a speech. Not another place to perform or to show off or compete. I believe what it needs is a church. And in this vision of the church, gone are all of those superficial pretenses of the polished Sunday morning experience and our old lives. Paul shared with them not only the gospel, what it is, but his own self, who he was. Some of which was very, very holy indeed. Verse 10 says, you are witnesses, you saw it because we lived together, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. He, he did a good job of being a holy leader. If you're going to be in leadership in a church, about a third of you will be in leadership. It's not just the plastic collar brigade, the, the clergy, as Robert likes to, to say. I don't know why we do that voice, but it, it feels fun. <laughs> it, it's not just a couple of ordained folk. It, it's, it's, it's anyone who runs a ministry in this place, anyone who has a position at the front, anyone who shares the gospel, anyone who teaches, anyone who sits on the board. About a third of you will be leaders at some point. This is the standard that you are called to live out if you're going to lead. I think many of us know the pain when a leader fails a church in some way. God's solution in those situations is not to hide our sin. It is not to pretend that we are holier than we are. It is to get closer. It is to find grace. It is to confess and repent and to grow in holiness. This bit applies to everybody. It starts at the front, but applies to everyone. What Satan wants to do, I think, is to disrupt this living together. Satan likes to isolate us. And I'm going to suggest to you this morning, it is in fact possible to be isolated even in church. Even in this room, during an act of corporate worship, it's possible to be isolated. As soon as the shields go up and the veneer is plastered on, you can be on your own in the body. Satan would love that. But that's not what the gospel does. This is not a place to pretend. It is a place to, to live the gospel together. Now, if you don't feel very holy, I've got a suggestion for you. Great piece of advice. Repent. It's that simple. I've only got one sermon. Here we go again. It's the same one, isn't it? Yep. Repent. If you've done something wrong, just confess. The gospel of grace allows that. 
and I'm about to do it. So last weekend, on our weekend off on the roof, I confess I provoked my wife to a fleeting and momentary agitation. Uh, and not a row, I'm not going to call it a row. Uh, I would, you know, we've developed over the years a very speedy conflict resolution uh, process. So I would describe this as nothing more than, than a fairly mild contretemps. But there was a disturbance in the force, and um, I was a bit frustrated that they were late for my roof party. <laughs> and uh, so I thought what, it, what would be the most helpful thing to do, if you want your whole family to be with you uh, in worship, what would be the most helpful thing you could do? I bellowed at them down the stairs with a sort of countdown clock. I thought that would be helpful. 15 minutes, you know, there's all the information you need. 10 minutes, and I got louder and quicker as I went to to kind of invest this speech with a sense of urgency. Five minutes, and then uh, when the clock had run out at 11 o'clock, I went up onto the roof to worship on my own in some disgruntled fashion. Cat arrived with the kids during the middle of the first hymn, And she observed to me that a better example of Christian headship, instead of bellowing down the stairs, might have been to come down the stairs and actually help them, like a a Christian. And uh, (laughs) I'm out of practice of being a Christian dad on a Sunday. I just come up here an hour early and do stuff. I, I just don't, I'm a novice, actually. I'm a novice at that practice. It's, it's, uh, I've discovered it's very hard. So <laughs> respect to all of you for that. Um, in the moment, I have to admit that my first reaction was pride, actually. Uh, and then we started to sing the first hymn that Robert had very carefully chosen. I read the words. I was convicted and undone by those words, exposed. And by the end of the first hymn, I said I was sorry. You can't tell anyone the gospel if you're unprepared to live out the gospel. It's not attractive. Don't work. It's a gospel of grace. So if you're judging people and feeling proud, <laughs> try sharing it that way. It will fail. But I bought you a bicycle. <laughs> what more do you want? Now, friend, our friends, our families, they don't just need to hear us say what it is. They need to see us live out what it does. Now, before you think of this as some great model of Christian you know, leadership, look, he made a mistake, they resolved it within a song. Uh, even the pagans know how to do this. This is not just some uniquely Christian thing. Even the pagans can do it. Last weekend, during the Formula One, and I, I just keep trying to persuade you to get into it. It's the world's most popular sport. I just keep trying to persuade you. There was a huge crash, and you are doubtless aware, because I know you're getting this, George Russell, he got out of his car, he crashed, and he, he stormed over to the other driver in the crash, and he slapped him around the head, and we don't know exactly what he said, but we could tell from his mannerisms it was, you know, fairly succinct, and uh, they had a row. It wasn't a mild contretemps, it was a big one. Then later on, I'm assuming that he'd seen the replay, because just after the race, he was a little more circumspect, and he said something like this, maybe we were both at fault. Then on Monday... On the internet, he posted these words. Sunday was not my proudest day. I feel you, mate. And I have to take responsibility for that. Having had time to reflect on what happened afterwards, I know that I should have handled the whole situation better, dot, dot, dot. I apologize. 
And the greatest driver in the history of the sport, Sir Lewis Hamilton, a believer, he responded, don't be too hard on yourself, mate. Strength comes from vulnerability. I don't think for one moment that anybody was persuaded by George Russell's display of entitlement and rage or impressed by his effing and jeffing and his violence. But I do think that he gained a lot of fans in that moment of vulnerability. Since when did the church need to learn how to be a Christian from racing drivers? What is going on? We don't just know what the gospel is. We receive the gospel. And we don't just repeat what the gospel is. We live the gospel. And to share the gospel effectively, we need to explain what it is and then live out what it does. And we do it together. When we mess up, we confess and we practice grace together. Our passions are powerful, but our penitence is persuasive. It's wonderful, and even the pagans seem to do a version of this sometimes. When we live it out, the power of the gospel is attractive, it is transformative, it is liberating. And when we do this, everything's going to be great, right? Nope. (laughs) Not at all. It will rattle some people. When we share what the gospel is and we live out what it does, it will persuade some because it's highly persuasive, but it will irritate others. And verse 14 goes there. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus. You're not going to copy leaders. Don't do that. Copy Jesus. And you will become what churches always become when they do, which is a target. You suffered. Paul continues, from your own countrymen. Your non-Christian friends and your non-Christian neighbors were threatened by this gospel of grace, and they turned on you. They treated you, he says, like the prophets. They treated you like Jesus himself. Jesus lived out the gospel perfectly. He is the gospel. And look what they did to him. Grace is liberating to some but it is threatening to others. Grace, the gospel, offends against our sense of pride. It disturbs our sense that we are in the right. It exposes our entitlement, and it demolishes the notion that we can save ourselves. When people repent, it can disarm some, but it can threaten others. Paul, we read, was actually driven out of this town because of the gospel. They'd had enough of it. So church, I just want to suggest that we should expect this to happen to us. I would say be encouraged, though, by these reactions, by these opposite reactions. As some come in and turn to Christ and others turn against you, I say be encouraged by those reactions. If there is no reaction to what a church is doing, then it's probably not sharing the gospel. And if it's not sharing the gospel, it's probably not a church. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the grace of what the gospel does. And if in any way in our own homes, uh, we've, we've just had some sort of conflict I just pray that uh, you would give us grace and humility. Uh, If not the humility of, of Jesus Christ, at least make us a bit like a racing driver.
How did that happen, Lord? I just thank you so much, Father, that, that you love us. And I thank you so much for what the gospel does. And as I uh, conclude in prayer, I'm just going to share with you a wonderful collect from the book of Common Prayer. So let's continue in prayer. O God, the Holy Spirit, sanctifier of the faithful, sanctify this congregation by your abiding presence. Bless those who minister, enlighten the minds of your people more and more with the light of the everlasting gospel. Bring erring souls to the knowledge of our Savior Jesus Christ and those who are walking in the way of life. Keep steadfast to the end. Give patience to the sick and afflicted and renew them in body and soul. Guard those who are strong and prosperous from forgetting you. Increase in us your many gifts of grace and make us fruitful in good works. This we ask, O blessed Spirit, whom the Father and the Son we worship together and glorify, one God, world without end. Amen.